0: Direction Point! Direction Point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.
1: Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey, which is currently in mid 1979. This episode is being released the day before Halloween and we have a very appropriate one of the rare Halloween themed Doctor Who stories being adapted in book form. It is The Image of the Fendahl from season 15 of the classic series and a 1979 book adaptation that came out about two years after the TV serial. It is a ghost story. Now, we will be talking at length later on in the recording about both the TV episode and the book. My guest is U.S. TV producer David Barsky, who is back from a field shoot. He will be talking about his new series that is going to be dropping in January. And, of course, we will have plenty of Doctor Who chat as well as well as a labored series of double entendres that David and I very, very carefully cultivated over the course of our recording. There's been a lot of Doctor Who news over the last week. As you all know, this episode is being released on Sunday, one week after the Sunday release of the final episode of New Series Season 13 the last episode on which Chris Chibnall is showrunner, and the last episode in which Jodie Whittaker is the Doctor, the 13th Doctor. She regenerates at the end of the episode into, spoiler alert, and the unlikely event that you have not seen the episode yet, David Tennant, who already played the Doctor between 2006 and New Year's Day 2010, he is coming back to the role. A brief trailer was released for three episodes that will air in 2024, all three starring David Tennant. Shudi Gatwa, who is going to be playing the new Doctor, is being described as incoming and returning showrunner. Russell T. Davies as the 15th Doctor. And also we have the surprising announcement that Disney has signed Doctor Who to a distribution deal. So beginning next year, new episodes will be streaming in the U.S. on the Disney Plus platform which I have heard a lot of mixed debate about this and what it means and confusion from fans who don't know the difference between a distribution deal and a production deal. But the good news is you will now hopefully be able to get your Doctor Who episodes at the exact same time that they are aired in the UK and you will not have to worry about commercial interference or tape delay as we've been doing here in the States for many, many, many years Another bit of exciting news is that the old diamond logo, including the logo that was used in the opening credits to Image of the Fendal and every other Doctor Who story between 1974 and the beginning of 1980, uh, will have uh, its return to the Doctor Who world. Very excited to see that. Also very excited for the very first interview that was put up on the Doctor Who YouTube channel with Shudi Gadwa. So, let's give that a listen
2: right now. Hello, I'm Shuti Gatwa, and I am the next Doctor in the next season of Doctor Who. And to celebrate the news that we'll be landing on the BBC and Disney+, Plus, I'm here to answer some questions. Let's go. Doctor Who is a show about an alien Time Lord with two hearts who travels through time and space with a human companion by their side in the TARDIS. Now the TARDIS is a spaceship that looks like an old British police box that you used to see on street corners but it is so much bigger on the inside. Each episode, the Doctor can travel in time and space to the furthest reaches of the universe in the deepest times in history. The Doctor is full of optimism and hope with a fierce sense of right and wrong. They are clever and courageous. The Doctor doesn't carry any weapons, just a sonic screwdriver for fixing things and getting out of tricky situations. They're full of adventure, running towards danger. But when fatally injured, they can regenerate. So a new body, new face, but with a soul and a memory that carries generations of knowledge and experience. What more do you want? I am so excited. Obviously it's daunting. It's an iconic role in show and I'm following in some very big footsteps, but I cannot wait to put my stamp on the character. With every new Doctor comes a new beginning for the show and there are some extraordinary storylines for the season. So I'm going to be very, very busy. I would take my TARDIS to Africa. I would take my TARDIS to Nigeria and I would love for the Doctor to meet the Orisha which were a set of gods in Nigerian mythology. And I think that he'd have a lovely old time there. What villain would I choose? The Weeping Angels is always a classic and they are just genuinely terrifying. I would love to battle the beast because what an ultimate villain, that is the devil. And I don't think you get much more evil than that. There is so much to come in the next season. The TARDIS can go anywhere and will go anywhere. And nothing is too big nor small. Right, that's it for the moment, I've got to get back to the TARDIS, but don't forget the new season of Doctor Who will be exclusively on the BBC in the UK, and Disney Plus in the rest of the world in 2023. See you then.
1: That is very exciting news, it seems like the future of the show is in very, very good hands as we head into the 60th anniversary season, the Diamond anniversary season, with the return of the Diamond logo. You can hear me over on Trap One, along with Conrad and Pete and Mark, all of whom have been on the show several times before and will doubtless be on it several times again in the future. We got together on Tuesday and we recorded an episode breaking down the power of the Doctor. You can hear some of my very long hot takes on the episode. Now, I was out of town for the week, and I couldn't take part in the second part of that recording, which is a 20-minute flashcast about the Disney Plus news, but Conrad, along with Pete and Mark, broke that down. Please give a listen, and I will put links in the show notes so that you can hear both Trap 1 episodes about the Power of the Doctor special and the forthcoming news about what's going to happen next year. Over on Twitter... With the Power of the Doctor airing on October 23rd, 2022. That was the end of my Doctor Who pilgrimage. Remember that I had started watching the series back from the very first 1963 episode on October 26th, 2020, during the pandemic. And I watched the entirety of the series from November 23rd, 1963 through October 23rd, 2022, along with several spin offs, both authorized and unauthorized. All my thoughts for all the episodes that I watched are up on Twitter under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DRWhoPilgrimage. I will be starting a new pilgrimage for a different TV series next week, and you'll find out more about that at the very end of this show. I will also have to change my outro so that I will no longer be mentioning the Doctor Who Pilgrimage hashtag in each episode, but that stuff will stay up for as long as Twitter exists. And, of course, with Elon Musk in charge, who knows how much longer that will be. In the meantime, next week is episode 50, a landmark episode in the life of any podcast. I encourage you to get in your submissions. I would love audio clips, between three and five minutes. Or if you prefer me to read it out, you can certainly send me your text. Any thoughts or memories that you have of the War Games, uh, either the book or the TV episode? The War Games was a landmark Doctor Who serial. It was the last story of the second Doctor. It introduced so much of the series mythology that is still with us today, even up through The Power of the Doctor itself, the most recent episode. So you have six more days to get that in, and I will include as many of those contributions as I get for next week's episode however now after a couple of trailers for other episodes in the direction point podcast network we will have back on my very good friend david barsky talking about his new tv series and our favorite tv series doctor who and then after that my review of doctor who and the image of the fendal let's get to it
0: are you ready to travel through time with us and check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from tv stories to audio plays from books to comics and more sean keith and glenn take you on a journey through 50 plus years of doctor who episodes and spinoff materials you can find us wherever you get your podcasts so be sure to check us out and now we're a proud member of direction point a doctor who podcast network you're listening to the doctor who literature podcast
1: So David Barsky, my sometimes co-producer. How are you, man? Good to see you again. Uh, great to see you, Jason. I, I, I don't know about uh, that title.
0: I, I, I appreciate the nod. Uh, you know, I, as I said to you before, I, too bad this wasn't a, a video podcast. I could put it on my IMDB, but uh, for anybody who knows what that is. But anyway, um, I mean, but I feel like we have to reevaluate our uh, relationship here now. I mean, n- you know, producer credit notwithstanding, it seems like all we ever talk about now is dicks. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, in three weeks, you're going to have a martyr complex because I have you on back in a few weeks to discuss an Ian Martyr novelization. And I won't say which one. Uh, I won't either, but I'm really looking forward to that for a lot of reasons. Yeah, you, you are booked, I'll just spoiler, I have you booked for each of these seven classic series doctors, so you're going to be a mainstay on this show until the bitter end, which is probably <laughs> about two and a half years from now.
0: Hey, it's 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 by choice, of course, I, I wanted to get one at least one in for each doctor, you know?
1: Well, you are one of my favorite people, and you're one of my honored guests, so you get whatever you want, so you are booked all the way through to a Sylvester McCoy book, and I will not say which one, but you, you are good to go.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate that, man. I, I feel like I've stuff to live up to now.
1: So, speaking of producer credits, you've been out of town for a series. Can you tell us what you've been working on?
0: Uh, yeah, I guess I can. Uh, I I just got back uh, from uh you know living in Virginia and uh, the D.C. area for a new Tubi series. Uh, Tubi, if you don't know, is a, uh, a a digital platform that's owned by Fox and. Uh, I did a show that is in conjunction with Studio Ramsey, Gordon Ramsey's production company. Uh, he's the you know that celebrity chef. Yes, and uh, it, it I did another um, sort of restaurant renovation show with another sort of celebrity chef. Um, and uh, it was name his name is by the, by the way Andre Rush. He gained some notability, uh, I guess, on social media. He uh, he served some tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He uh, uh, was the presidential chef at the White House for President Obama. Oh wow! And he actually <laughs> he, he he gained some notoriety on Instagram, I guess it was, uh, for doing two thousand two hundred twenty-two push-ups a day, <laughs> um, and he's got uh, biceps that are thicker than my head. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, and he's a uh, you know, despite, you know, what his stereotypical look might be, man, the guy can cook the hell out of a a dinner. Let me tell you that I gained a few pounds, to say the least.
1: So he was a he's a celebrity chef, former military, and he has biceps uh, the size of Terrence Dix's uh, bookshelf.
0: Yeah, pretty, pretty much. There you go. Should have kept it on brand for you. I'm sorry about that. Uh, My analogies are sometimes off.
1: So, how many episodes uh, did you did you run? Uh we did
0: uh, ten episodes in all, and they're all going to drop. I believe uh, the plan now is Super Bowl Sunday.
1: Oh wow! On um, so that's going to be on Tubi, or is that going to be on Fox
0: after the game? It's going to be on Tubi. They may there's there's talk about promoting it on Fox. I think just I, I, because the Super Bowl, I believe, is on Fox this year, so uh, that could be very good. You know, Ramsay obviously has got some you know big time cloud over there at Fox, so um it's all good you know it was, it was honestly one of the best experiences i have in a long time uh i love the show it was a lot of fun uh chef rush was amazing he was such a great guy great to work with willing, willing to learn because he's never really done uh television like this before he's done a lot of stuff on youtube and things like that you know different format and uh He uh, he was awesome to work with and uh, I already miss it. You know, after that, I went up to after the show wrapped, I I went up to spend some time with my mom up in Boston and I drove home cross country. Yeah, I, I tend to do that. I've done that, oh, gosh, I think three times in the last two years, if not four. Um, I, 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 you know, when I, when I get a gig, I, I, I tell them I want to drive just cause I like to see things. And I like to, you know, when I can, you know, work in a short hike, you know, in random places like, I don't know, Tennessee or Alabama, where I'm going.
1: And to work off all the extra meals from, uh, Andre Rush.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm still, I'm still doing that.
1: You know, I put on some weight with the COVID and, at the urging of my GP, I've gotten back into my old cardio fitness routine, so three 45-minute classes a week. Now, there's a push-up regimen to that. I'm trying to calculate. I don't know if I've done 2,200 push-ups in my life. Yeah, It's probable that I have, but 2,200 in a day is well beyond my engineering tolerances.
0: Yeah, you no, know, he gets up at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, it takes him an hour and a half to finish
1: if i were to wake up at four in the morning and spend 90 minutes in an activity i'd be watching Legopolis, which is about 90 minutes <laughs> you fast forward i've through done the that side. i've
0: actually done that um it was but i think uh the last time I, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and watched something it was uh i believe the um the commentary on um what is it tomb of the <laughs>
1: the original commentary with Fraser and Debbie Watling or are the more recent commentaries for the later releases?
0: Uh, the original. I haven't, I, I have, I have some of those uh, I believe, but I haven't really delved into them.
1: That was the one I think. Every third sentence out of Debbie Watling, bless Debbie Watling, wonderful person. But I think everything she says on my com- on my commentary is "My goodness, Fraser!" Isn't he tall? My goodness, <laughs> Fraser! Look how tall he is. <laughs> that was before they had Toby Haydock and others moderating the commentary. So some of the yeah. early ones are full of uh, interesting actor observations. Yeah,
0: Toby. Uh, Toby has his work cut out from him. He's a, he's a great guy, and he doesn't, an, needless to say, does a great, great job on absolutely commentaries i mean he's very valued in the community and he's a great historian for for the show
1: and a great cheerleader for the show and just you know there there have been some really good moderators and there have been some really good commentary tracks with just the performers but when he is in there it is a special brand of magic
0: yeah no he's great on on every level I, i like his podcast as well as one of the other few doctor who's i currently listen to and, you um, know, I had and I had the pleasure of meeting him and uh, I believe I gave him some scotch that I had in my pants. <laughs> um, you know, you know I, I tend to do that at conventions.
1: I'm still recovering from the scotch that you gave me at galley a few years ago. Dude, just say no. I'm telling you all the time. You know, I'm, no pressure here, man. Uh, When David Barsky gives you a a request, you don't say no. It's just that's my rule of thumb. Oh, boy. All right. (laughs) Well, I'm here. (laughs) So when you drive cross-country, which route do you take? We we, we lived in L.A. for two years. When we moved back to Brooklyn in 08, we did the cross-country drive on 66. But we didn't do straight up 66. We did about half local roads, half interstate each day to get home in nine days. How do you do it?
0: Um, it, it, it really varies. Um, uh, let me see in March of 21, I went out to visit my mom. I, I took a very, very Southern, Southern route. Um, I cut down on highway 10, interstate 10, and then went down to the very Southern area of Texas to Galveston. I've never been to Galveston. So, and then I went through Louisiana and then cut up on eventually, I guess I hit 81, Uh, That goes all the way up to, you know, Pennsylvania through Virginia and all that. And then over through New York and Boston. Uh, But on the way home, I took 80 and 90, you know, so I went through Montana. Um, I just like, I just like varying up so I can see as much as possible in this country. Um, I have this insane, um, insane dream to set foot in every country in the United States. Every county, excuse me, every county in the United States.
1: Every county, wow.
0: Yeah, and I do keep count. Um, and it's not just drive through. I got, I got, I got to step out, and I got to, I got, I got, to experience something about it.
1: Now Maine has that big unincorporated area in the northern part of the state. I forget the designation. That'll it's actually challenge.
0: no. It's it's actually it, it is still part of a county. There's so, there, there's not quite uh, uh, actually New Hampshire has some of that as well. They they are unincorporated areas that are part of counties, but they're not townships per se. Um, and um, so, but the, Maine has, I believe, sixteen counties or twenty three. I can't remember the exact. I think it might be sixteen. Um, I've complete. I completed Virginia while I was out there on my oh, weekends. Wow. Yeah. The the weird thing about Virginia it's 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 a big pain in the butt. Um, because it's got this weird elongated shape. I don't know if you know. I, I, I've been fascinated with geography and, and the shapes of the states. I had a puzzle when I was a little kid. My mom bought me. And, I, and um, fun fact, uh, I, in the fourth grade, for some random reason, um, every child in the fourth grade when I was there was handed out a, uh, uh, a silhouetted map of the United States with nothing on it, no names, nothing. And they told us to f- fill in the names of every state. I was the only person in the whole class able to do that.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: I mean, some two other people came, they were like missed one. But I mean, we're talking 100 some kids and I'm looking at my smart best friends and you know, they're literally we're, we're in Massachusetts and they and he had Connecticut for New York. And I'm like, "Oh god, man." That's weird. <sighs> I lost a lot of respect for a lot of people that day. But, but, you know, I, I, you know, Virginia is really bizarre because as far as visiting the counties, because they have actually, I believe, 40 st- uh, cities that are not part of counties. So they're kind of like city counties, but they're not. But if you want to include them in, you know, a county count, there are 133 counties. And sometimes these cities exist in the middle of another county. So you got to find your way to them. Plus, you know, uh, you know the mountains are, you know, the, the highways going through the mountains of Virginia are sometimes it's a little easier access. It's not something you can do in a weekend, that's for sure. And they got these two weird, weird little—I uh, call it the Dingleberry counties—they <laughs> they hang off, they, they, <laughs> hang, they, hang, they hang off the butt of Maryland, oh. so you know, and they're across the Chesapeake Bay. So you have to take if you want to access them through Virginia uh, from the county slash city of Virginia Beach. You got to take a, a, you know, the several mile bridge that costs $18 to go across. And I did that in 2021.
1: Well, Maryland has the Eastern shore. Louisiana has parishes instead of counties. Baltimore is a city and a county at the same time. So you got to do both. Yep. So that, that requires some pretty serious algorithms, I would think.
0: Yeah. I finished off Maryland as well. This, uh, this trip, um, as well as New Mexico. I went to the final six counties. I haven't been to in New Mexico uh, along the top and including uh, visiting four corners, which is a area I've never been to before, you know, a small little monument they have in the Navajo country. And you can, you know, it's a fun, stupid thing. You can take a picture of yourself, you know, in four States at once.
1: Yeah, we drove through New Mexico on 66. We did uh continental divide,
0: which mm-hmm. I knew
1: is the title of a John Belushi movie. We did not get a chance to go to the four corners.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. It's a little out of the way. I mean, you have to, you got to go up by ship rock. Um, and that's, you know, and in in very, you know, obviously it's in the northwestern corner of the state of New Mexico. Uh, that's the easiest way to access it unless you want to come up through Flagstaff for a couple hours. Um, and I actually uh, can't, you know, I was, obviously I was coming from the east, so I went through Shiprock. I made the detour. It's about 45 minutes or so to four corners. And then I went down to Flagstaff uh, and, and, and actually decided to get some sleep. <laughs> My final <laughs> night on the road was in Flagstaff.
1: So speaking of sleep, let's talk about a television story that it's decent, it's got its high points for me, is not one of my favorites, Image of the Fendal. Uh. And in terms of books, it would take about, I think, 100 copies of Image of the Fendal, which is only 103 pages, to match Andre Rush's biceps. Yeah, you're
0: probably right. I actually counted 102 in my volume. I have a actually a British volume. It's not it was one before it starts on page 7 ends in 109. Yeah, it's 103. Oh, it's 103. Oh, I guess you're counting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess that's right.
1: We take our calculations very seriously here on Doctor Who Literature. We have the slide rule. We have the compass. We have the right, pocket calculator. But if, you
0: go, but if you go to page 60, that's like a fifth of the page. So you got to include how much blank space there are at the end of chapters as well.
1: That is true. And, of course, this is a book with lots of scenes and lots of blank spaces between scenes. So there are some pages that are more blank space than text.
0: I remember when I had the entire collection, this thing was sitting on my desk at home when I was growing up, and – I kept on looking at it and I knew it's the skinniest volume. It's got to be, I mean, a of death is also, you know, pretty damn close, but this is pretty anemic uh, as far as, you know uh, how thick it is, of course. But I, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons why I chose it. uh, Why I wanted to do it because as far as the story goes, I've I've had sort of a, a weird um, history with it. You know, like I've told you, I've, I had many people, they had that first initial, you know, package of the first four seasons of Tom Baker. And, um, I, you know, I was in doctor who for the monsters and I was about 10 years old when I first saw this story. And I watched it as a strip. They aired it as a strip. It was Monday through Friday. So I I may have seen this over a weekend. I don't know how it was divided up, but but I had a lot of trouble following it. Um, I I mean, and it's so dense with ideas and um, amazingly dense with ideas and perhaps too many. And uh, but that's okay. I, I, I. I always gleaned something more every time I, I saw it. In fact, I, there's, there's little bits and pieces. I mean, I last saw it maybe three years ago. I think I watched it, and I got more out of it. But, you know, th- and, and I always knew, well, I mean, probably when I got older, probably my late teens, early 20s, um, it is, you know, lifted in, in a great part of what I've always called my favorite movie of all time, Equator Mass in the Pit. Anytime anyone asks me that question, what's your favorite movie? I always say Quator Mass in the Pit. I have for at least 30 years.
1: Now, being in the States where that is not as well known a movie, what are the reactions that you get when you say your favorite movie is Quater Mass in the Pit?
0: Totally blank. Um, unless, I mean, most you know, most "quote unquote" normies have no freaking idea what that is. Uh, then, then I, then I kind of joke and say, "Well, in the states, it was known as five million years to Earth." That's how I. <laughs> Sorry. And then, then they, they even go blanker. You know, they they just want to leave the conversation. Really.
1: I will tell you this about the equator mass. It's 1990, I think. So I'm still in high school and a bunch of us go to the local Triplex. That was back when you could still have a three-screen theater be economically viable. Mm -hmm. We went to see Gremlins 2, the new batch. Oh, boy. Which is, it is an underrated movie. It is better than the first one, I think, even though it's not as serious. And it is full of references to every obscure sci-fi movie slash franchise, with the exception of Doctor Who. But it takes place in a Donald Trump-esque skyscraper. The bad guy in the movie is a cross between Trump, this is pre-politics Trump, and Ted Turner. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So it talks about a colorized version of Casablanca with a happier ending, for example. (laughs) So Christopher Lee plays the mad scientist in the first half of the movie, and he's one of the vehicles through which the gremlins not only escape, but get transformed into a variety of genetically mutated crazy gremlins, one of whom talks like the actor Tony Randall. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And as you're walking through the corridors by Christopher Lee's office, there's a sign pointing to Professor Quatermass's uh, office space. Oh. And I was probably the only teenager in the theater who goes, "I know Professor Quatermass,"
0: because
1: <laughs> I, I hadn't seen it at that point, but I read about it, and I think at Doctor Who the early years or Doctor Who: A Celebration, one of those hardcover Peter Haining volumes.
0: Yeah, it's it probably Cele- it's probably Celebration for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how I we,
1: recognize the name Quatermass.
0: Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I'm going to have to watch that movie again because I think I've only seen it once. And, you know, I, I had a you know, a bad attitude about sequels that generally kind of, you know, sort of patted themselves off to the original, especially in sci-fi fantasy realm. Like Ghostbusters 2 was completely – that was awful. But whatever the case, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I love that movie because I guess it's got a lot of things that appeal to me in the genre. You know, the alien invasion uh, in the form of ancient aliens, if you will. Um, archaeology is a big, big thing of mine. I'm, you know, I'm not an amateur archaeologist, but I love, um, I love reading about it. Uh, every time there's an article, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I subscribe to certain newsletters about archaeology and stuff like that. So, uh, it's got a lot, a lot of things, you know, and the funny thing though, about image of the Fendal though, it, 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 it you know, obviously we know the third doctor story, the demons also takes a lot from, uh, quater mass in the pit right but you know it, it, between the demons and, and, and Fendal, they, they 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 pick and choose different things to rip off but interestingly enough Fendal rips off the demons far more than it does uh the quater mass story um mainly because the whole pov of 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 the wiccan uh doesn't exist at all in um in in the quater mass story at all uh it, it is, right that is a
1: that is, that is a much more doctor who obsession
0: yeah well yeah i mean the, the the demons introduced that and and of course it's i think it's done much better in fendall quite frankly uh I, you know i think you know um miss hawthorne is probably a little bit more of a caricature than you know um <laughs> gran is for instance but um more subtle of a character as well Mrs. T
1: definitely Grant has a day job as the cook at the Priory and she has her clients and she has that amazing scene now just to backtrack I think there is a great story waiting to get out of Image of the Fendall This was in the interregnum when Robert Holmes was out the door as script editor. Mm -hmm. Anthony Reed was coming in. This story was made in the middle of the season. With some massaging and rewriting, this could have been one of my favorites. There's a lot that the script never bothers to explain. Right. And because it is a Graham Williams production rather than Philip Hinchcliffe, and because you've already lost the great directors, David Maloney left the series for good. Douglas Camfield left the series for good. Michael E. Bryant left the series for good. You're left with George Spenton Foster. I think this is his only Doctor Who. Uh,
0: actually, no. Ironically enough, he also did my next uh, novel.
1: Ah, which is a, one of my favorite stories, full stop. But this one, I think he just doesn't really... Nobody massages the script. So there's a lot that's left unexplained. And I think the best parts of the script are the parts that aren't told. A lot more could have been done with a time scanner... Basically Professor Fendelman is this Elon Musk type who is basically a, a billionaire weapons contractor who's developed this time scanner, then the story doesn't do much with it and mm-hmm. it's never explained why Thea was chosen by the, was Thea chosen by the Fendel because she happened to be near the skull when it activated or was she part of this generations long curse? Right. Going back millions of years. So I have a lot of questions like that. However, The scene where the doctor is trying to get Granny out of her trance by reciting the recipe for a fruitcake and she reacts to it is just one of the great – if you do a highlight reel of all the great Tom Baker acting moments, that's got to be up there. Yeah, no, it's really great and the
0: way she snaps out of it. Absolutely. I mean, and again, as I said, a lot of things confused me as a kid. And even though I knew this was a rather anemic book, I was, I, I chose it because I was hoping maybe Dick's explains some stuff. <laughs>
1: All right. So that's, that's the next question. Does he, does he understand the story enough to provide us really good explanations? Um, I'm going to say maybe I, I I'm kind of, I'm kind of,
0: uh, although ultimately no, because here's the thing. I started off really, really enjoying this book right from page one because instantly, uh, there's a col, there's a Samuel Tere Rhyme of the ancient mariner, uh, you know, phrase, and I'm, I was like, okay, that's new. And we look, we all know that Dix probably puts the most energy in his opening paragraphs yeah. in every novel. I mean, you, you've 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 pointed that out in, in previous episodes, and I'm like, all right, this is cool. I love. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of of, of Coleridge. Uh, I actually got <laughs> i got a, i got a, I got into him in a very odd way. Um, uh, um, one of my favorite bands of all time, Rift, rhyme of the ancient mariner.
1: Is that Black Sabbath?
0: No, Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden, yes, yes. Iron Maiden did in their in their in their 1984 album Power Slave. they the final. They, they have a 13 minute and three second song called "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner," and actually uh, takes a, a few of the stanzas and recites them. And but tells the whole story in the song, and it's one of my favorite uh, favorite songs. to to, to, uh, to hear them live, play it play live. Unfortunately, they did not play it last week when I saw them in Worcester, Massachusetts. Wow. Oh, <laughs> but wow. um, uh, but uh, anyway, so the funny thing about it is, you know, I, I got I, I got into Coleridge because of that song, and um, I actually quoted it. I quoted I don't know why I can't remember why, but in my English class, sophomore year. I I I reference rhyme of the ancient Mariner in, in 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 relation to something we were talking about in, in in the class, and unbeknownst to me, my English teacher nominated me and I won student of the month, wow. and in part because I referenced something that was outside of the class. So thank you, Iron Maiden. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I was, I was like st- student of the month for 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 you know for my sophomore class. But, you know, when I saw that pop up and, you know, uh, you know, I, I actually actually always love that scene with the hiker too. <laughs> another stupid offhand reference. You know, I watch a lot of horror films. I, as I said, look, look, uh, Quatermass in the pit is my favorite. You know, another Quator Massey Hammer production, uh, uh, X the Unknown. Are you familiar with that?
1: I am not, but I will point out this is my Halloween episode. This is going to drop on October 30th. We are ah. recording this the Wednesday before Halloween and you are sitting in a dark, candlelit study so this could not be a more halloweeny episode
0: <laughs> i tried absolutely i mean listen i mean people walking through the forest fearing the dark and what's what's creeping up upon them is like is something you see in ho- uh, horror movies all the time but, american wolf in london begins with the exact same yeah, scene exactly uh however when i was a kid and i first saw this and and memory has uh does not serve me now i'm afraid and i, I lost which i saw first image of the Fendal, or X the unknown. This film has a, uh, but I, it always reminded me, the, the, the scene and the way it's shot, and someone standing stiff, looking at something in shock that we cannot see, but only can hear, staring at this thing, approaching it. from from the, the monster's point of view, was used in X the unknown when two kids are walking through the forest, and this energy creature is 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 approaching one of the kids because they got separated. The kid who uh got burned by this energy creature uh escaped but his friend later caught up with him you know who played his friend at the age of six i believe
1: who is that i'm looking this up but i want to have you tell us
0: fraser Hines was the child actor who played his friend in that wooded scene
1: oh i am gonna have to immediately find this okay there we go you're right the fraser Hines, 1956 wow but
0: I've always, I've, I've always thought of that scene when I, when, when, I, when I saw this on television. I was like, oh, my God. I, the two It just reminded me because I, you know, I remember seeing this movie and probably not understanding Accident Unknown, but I saw it a lot of times because it was in the syndicated cycle, just like Doctor Who was on, on an independent station in Boston that showed all the great movies.
1: Uh, there are two other Doctor Who actors in the cast. I will give you the actors and the actually, sorry, three. Three Doctor Who actors in the cast. I'll give you the actor's name. You give me the role.
0: Okay. Kenneth Cope.
1: He, Kenneth Cope. Who is Kenneth Cope in Doctor Who?
0: See, I I am really bad at this part, unless they're really like big ones. Like I'm like I know Julian Glover, you know, he was in uh uh what do you call it? He was in Quatermass Mass in the Pit, of course, and he did a couple of Doctor Who's. I don't know who Kenneth Cope is.
1: I'll give you, I'll narrow it down. I'll give you two hints. First hint, season 18. Oh, my.
0: Season 18.
1: Wow. Which is probably the greatest Doctor Who season of all time in the classic series, with the possible exception of seven.
0: No, we can can debate that a lot, dude. And
1: I'm sure we will, because you're going to be doing seven Doctors on this show, so we'll have plenty of time. Yeah, yeah.
0: Gosh. You know, I recognize it. One more hint.
1: Warrior's Gate
0: oh my god yeah i don't know who he played in that though because he looks a lot different from 1956 i believe that 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 movie was
1: that's true he was packer so he was the bald Packard. um uh. executive officer to captain rorvik yeah uh another one is fairly obscure john harvey john harvey was in two black and white stories Jesus. the larger one was a heart era story oh i have no idea man uh, again, Toby Haydock would have this uh, without even being asked.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, he he's all about the actors, man. He knows he knows them.
1: You know, so John Harvey was Professor Brett in The War Machines, the which is War a Machine. great mad scientist turn.
0: Yep, yep.
1: And then the last one is Edwin Richfield. Oh, God. Don't even. Who is best? He's a, He was in Two Doctor Who's. He's best known for wearing a hideous rubber mask in Colin Baker's first story.
0: Oh, my God. So he was one of the... <laughs> <laughs> One of the Birdman.
1: <laughs> he was inside. He was inside Nestor. Oh, he was Nestor. Oh my and god! He, and he also had a very large part as the brigadier surrogate in the Sea Devils. Now, bearing oh. in mind, I have not seen this movie. I'm just on Wikipedia, and these names jump out at me off the page yeah, because my not who credits person. obsession.
0: I'm definitely no. That's great. I'm not an actor person like I probably should be uh, on some of these people. You know, I'm more about obviously directors and writers, but. Uh, um yeah that's great you know it's funny i was thinking this morning I was like what other uh, games could chase and play on his uh on, on his podcast
1: <laughs> i think you might have found one uh yeah we will have to next time you're back we will have to play no 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 we're not playing run.
0: this game though
1: <laughs> <laughs> i already i just did and i lost horribly i thought about giving you the limericks game for this one but i could I had a, I had a really hard time finding a rhyme for Wanda Ventum, so I gave up. But we're going to play 20 questions instead in a few minutes.
0: Oh, wait! I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it any which way you can give it to me, man. I'm not worried about it.
1: So I was introduced to Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner through this book. I would have been 11 or 12 years old, and I wouldn't have heard of Coleridge. What about Ten, Iron
0: Maiden? Did you hear about them?
1: I was not given Iron Maiden record, record albums by my parents. No. That was kept for me until I was much older remember this is the 80s this is the middle of a satanic panic so that's, that's well you know iron maiden with
0: that went through that uh before a lot because they had their 1982 album number of the beast and there was there was there was all that kind of crap going on with them but then of course you know they they you know they kind of try to counteract that a little bit when their next album with the song called revelations and um but whatever the case um yeah it's all baloney but I could go on for days about that as well. (laughs) Pardon me. I didn't mean to interrupt
1: the story. (laughs) No worries. So my 10th grade English class in high school, Mrs. Montalbano, the entire text of Rime of the Ancient Mariner appeared in our reader. Uh So she had the entire class read it out. Every student would get three or four stanzas going down the line. And just by coincidence, having not done my homework and having not read the poem the night before, I am just reading this on the fly and I get a sign the stanza, like one who on a lonesome road does walk in fear and dread. You actually Adam had that line. Turn round, walked on, and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend that's wow. close behind him tread. I got that I recognized from my copy of Image of the Fendal. I'm like, I know this. This is awesome. So because of that, Rime of the Ancient Mariner became my favorite poem. And I probably have, it's it's seven parts. I probably have the entire first part memorized. The other parts I'm not so good at, but I could probably do the first 20 stanzas Nice. off the top of my head and this is a short podcast so i won't but ancient Mariner is ingrained in the old uh cranium up here well give the uh
0: give the iron maiden tune a listen
1: i will and for copyright reasons i'm not going to be playing it out but i will give it a listen and i encourage you to pause the episode listen to all 13 minutes and three seconds and then come back for the exciting conclusion of david barsky and the image of the Fendal.
0: oh and there are there are several live versions if you want to find those on youtube as well but uh I'd recommend the original.
1: Do they have the Chris Boucher slash Terrence Dix stanza in the song? They do not. They do not.
0: They have water, water everywhere uh, that which they actually sing. Sing that the water, water every. Uh, 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 excuse me, water, water everywhere, and and there's a couple um, uh, spoken word in the middle where they do this like awesome awesome break in the song where it's it's like they're on the ocean and you hear like creaky ship sounds of of, of of a ship adrift at sea and they talk about um you know uh um each crew the crew member falling down one by one and he curse me with a ghastly pang you know that kind of they, they do, do that stanza and um you know another one in that same little bit it's 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 brilliant
1: so this reminds me of Grand Funk Railroad's "Closer to Home," which also has the aquatic sounds, but it's not quite as long as the Iron Maiden.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the break in the middle of the song is is absolutely beautiful. Of course, they do the you know the the you know the 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 what do you call it the you know the the effect the smoke effect coming like it rolls over the you know rolls over the edge of the stage. It's freaking amazing.
1: Dry ice. Wow, I'm gonna have, have to find that. So does Terrence Dix understand the story? I don't think he does because he doesn't provide an explanation for a lot of the things about the story that I don't understand. I agree. I agree. I mean,
0: it's one of the things, like I said, we haven't got past page one on your question. I'm sorry. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I, as I said, I was like, hey, I'm into this. And for the most part, I enjoyed this book, and I didn't really expect to uh, because it is a very thin volume. But as you go along, you know, he he does provide a little bit of a little bit of backstory on the mindset of uh, of Fendelman. A little bit on style, uh, but as far as characterization goes, we really needed something with Thea, who undergoes the the biggest arc of anybody in this uh, in this whole story. And even on you know on screen, you see how she starts to understand that she is and admits she's part of she is the. Um, she is carrying out this plan. It's her plan. It's not Fendelman's plan. And so I'd love to know what she was thinking, how she's dealing with it. We know she goes out to seek the doctor uh, for help. And why, why doesn't Dix provide anything on, on, on her thought process? That would have been the best part, the best thing he could have done for this book um, to, to understand, help us understand theist, uh Transformation
1: he does explain a little bit about Max Stale's obsession with the occult. And I think he goes a smidge into professor Fendelman's previous career as, Mm -hmm. as a munitions developer. But again, and this is not, there are some really good performers in this cast. Wanda Ventham, absolutely beyond reproach. The, the actress who plays granny and the actor who plays Jack, who later came back two years later to be a nightmare of Eden. Right. Those are really good actors, but, colby is a very funny character he is the wit in the house Mm -hmm. he is the groucho Marx type no matter what somebody says he has to have a funny line playing off what he's just heard but as directed on tv most of the humor is diffused and it doesn't really come across in the book so much either
0: no um you know you're right about colby uh and i you know he like he really plays off you know max style and uh you know, they're, they're like totally opposite of each other, you know, style. So, you know, very, very serious. Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I think Tom Baker does have a lot of good stuff. And there's one great visual pun uh, that actually plays in the story that I love. And honest to God, I didn't catch until the second to last time I watched it was at the at the at the end when Leela's running out of the uh the basement and she throws a bottle of salt over his shoulder and they've already established that you know the doctor even the many things that uh you know the race memory uh, you know th- that that might have started from the fendal uh includes the you know the legend of throwing salt over your shoulder and she did that and i thought that's brilliant and of course you know dicks i don't know i don't know if you watched the damn thing at that point, <laughs> he missed that he did not include that or he's includes some other stuff as well um, you know, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, you, you know, is you, I, I was a little put off by, and I don't remember this, but in, in viewing the story, um, a little put off by the doctor's temperament towards Leela at the beginning. And that too reminded me, I was like, I wonder if, I wonder if, uh, uh, you know, I, I wonder if Boucher actually watched the, the demons and, and said, oh, this is the doctor, what the doctor should be like, because the, the doctor ain't great. The third doctor is not very nice to Joe in that story. Not um, at all. It's one of the biggest complaints I have about that 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 story.
1: It may be more to do with Tom Baker really not wanting Louise Jameson on the show at that point, still missing Elizabeth Sladen, as did we all. And if you watch the studio scenes, he refuses as an actor to make eye contact with his co-star, which is not very good, not very generous acting. No, not at all, and and you know, but it's funny because Louise
0: has said by this point, I thought they had made up at Fang Rock, um, right? But
1: this is post Fang Rock, is it not? Was this? I think it was I think rapid. Fang
0: Rock was made
1: second, and this was made fourth. That's yeah. from memory. I think that's how it goes.
0: But there was probably some still. I mean, because mm-hmm. there's a and you know, and to be fair, Dix does cor- correct a little quote unquote correct a little bit of that nastiness when you know um everybody's got to gather any, everything and, uh, and 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 tom baker literally says to um well i don't want to confuse the actor of with the with the role but of course in the case of tom baker uh, the actor is the role but you know he says <laughs> Le- leela go away you know and and but dick says leo you should probably go too he's far kinder in the language uh, that he uses um uh, when, the, when the doctor talks to Leela although he he does he still uses you know the primitive thought patterns and you know that are in episode one he still mimics that um, it, well you you know I, I should say mimics but he, he actually writes that uh, so Dix doesn't correct all of it he's, he's sort of um, s- sort of on the fence about the treatment of Leela because he does give her more agency I noticed um, when the doctor uh, at the re- resolution of the cliffhanger when the doctor um, is you know trying to escape eustace and eustace has got him under control eustace the skulls uh, got him right. under control he puts out his other hand to stop leela from touching him in the book that never happens and dick says leela decides to you know from her instincts no she shouldn't touch him then kicks out the chair so you know he gives her more a little bit more agency which was nice to see actually
1: and chris Boucher, of course this was his final Mm -hmm. Story for Doctor Who before he moves on to Blake seven. But he was, of course, the creator of Lila. You would have expected there to be more development consciously of the Doctor's relationship with Lila. And this should have been the story where they got along the most because they've been together the longest. But it just doesn't play out that way in studio.
0: It it doesn't. You know, that was a bit surprising, you know, and and that's what's a little conflicting, you know, about it. You know, and, and I thought that myself. But what he does do, what Boucher does do, that Dick's really doesn't play on because it's again mostly a visual thing um is developer in the whole you know the idea her original idea of the pygmalion you know nature of her and the doctor she's looking in a at the end she's looking at the mirror you know when she changed uh looking at her hair so you know changing quote unquote you know the, the savage is evolving you know sort of thing uh i think he's really trying to in the changing of the dress, I think that Boucher is trying to give her more character and show her d- literal development that way. Because it was initially, you know, the whole Pygmalion, you know, my fair lady aspect of their relationship was one of one of the uh, remits of, of it. So,
1: And Terrence does again, he doesn't put a lot of himself into this book, but he does give Leela a great line where she decides not to kill somebody. In the text, and compliments herself on how civilized she's becoming. Exactly. That is pure pure Terrence. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, It's funny. You you know, uh, I, 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 again, I just think he's really on the fence about how how to treat her. I I don't know. Um, I don't know if he's just trying to, he does try to add more urgency to, to things, you know, and I think it's to his detriment actually as well not in the sense of Leela uh, per se, but just, just like, uh, little touches he puts with the, with like, uh, you know, um, the decomposition of the, of, of, of Mitchell, uh, after the Fendel attack Mitchell, the security guard, uh, that's not in the story, uh, as, as it aired, but, Dix Dix adds that as a little floor, saying, okay, for some reason, this is getting worse because this body's decomposing quicker than the hikers is.
1: But Terrence also doesn't understand how the Fendal operates because on page 42, Mitchell stood up and found he couldn't move. His legs simply refused to obey. The door burst open and his face distorted in fear at the horror in front of him. That's fine. Next line. Mitchell screamed and died. Yeah, I have maybe <laughs> the worst lion Terence ever wrote. I have that
0: in my notes as well. I'm like, what? You really mailed it in, dude. I don't think it's not that he. I don't think he. Uh, I mean, and, and given like how he described the corpse of the hiker and how he died, and he just mails in Mitchell. I, I'm like, what, what's going on, man? I, I, I don't get it. I, I thought that was really dumb. You know, <laughs> you know, and likewise, he gets kind of lazy with the. The, the descriptors of the fendeline when they're approaching uh uh you know uh, what i got the, the hiker when, when when he approaches the hiker it's a slurred dragging hissing hungry sound mm. and, and 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 when it hits and when it goes for the doctor it's a slurred dragging hissing gobbling hungry sound. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what that sounds like and, and and how do you and how do you know it's hungry <laughs> but it, with Mitchell, it's dragging shuffling, hissing, sucking and hu- with a hungry quality <laughs> And then when it when it approaches the group uh, you know with with, with gran and, and, and everybody uh, it's a, uh, what, what, a what is it a muffled dragging hungry hissing gobbling sound. So he, he throws up when, it, when it's four people about to be attacked, he throws everything out
1: well, I am on the road this week in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm going to make this interview a little bit shorter than normal, but you have hit some incredible points, and I think we've gotten to the bottom of this rather slim book. Oh, man,
0: I, I, I could go on forever.
1: <laughs> I may ask you some supplemental questions in three weeks, but I want to do now is play 20 questions, because last time, you and I played Guess That Cliffhanger, and you expressed dissatisfaction with your responses, so I want to give you a fair shot of 20 questions. Oh, boy. ah. Uh... You know, yeah, I think I was the guinea pig on that one. You were the very first person to play Guess That Cliffhanger. Uh, 20 questions is a pretty established game. The record is six. I have selected one Doctor Who serial at random from the, the randomizer.net between the very first story and Legend of the Sea Devils. I don't believe Power of the Doctor has been loaded up. You have 20 yes or no questions to guess the story. Question number one.
0: All right. Um,. Is it a classic series story?
1: It is a classic series story. Halfway home, my friend. Question number two.
0: Is it a black and
1: white story? It is a black and white story. And now you've cut the half in basically one third. Question number three. Is it a first doctor story? It is a first Doctor story. You're on fire. Three for th- I think the record is four for four. Dale Smith did that. So your question number four, you've got a chance to have the all-time record for most positive answers to start your uh, start your game. And the record is is six. I thought it was better than that. But I guess the record so. the record for most yeses in a row is four. The record oh. for guessing the episode entirely is six. Okay, got it. Yeah, all right.
0: Is it a second season story?
1: Oh, it is not a second season story. So you're now at question five.
0: Now I'm at question five, and I want to win. So I'm just going to go for it, man. Uh, gosh, is it the arc?
1: It is not the arc. Question okay. six.
0: Is it a uh, third season story?
1: It is a third season oh, story. On the right yeah. You're on there. You're very. You're closer than you realize with question seven. Oh, man.
0: Uh is it the Celestial Toymaker?
1: It is not the Celestial Toymaker. Oh, it is not who we believe Neil Patrick Harris is going to be next year on the Russell yeah. T
0: Davies season. Question right. 8. Um gosh. Probably should have um narrowed it down for I guess there's not much more I could do though. Um companion wise.
1: Uh I get well, is Dodo in the story? Yes, Dodo is in the story. All right, okay. Question nine. That really narrows it down because she had yeah, very few. Yeah,
0: well, consider I already guessed two of them. But the way you said it, I'm going to say, uh, is it the Massacre?
1: Oh, see, what you're trying to do is you're trying to read my mind. You heard what you thought was hesitation oh, in my voice. No. <laughs> and you know that Dodo was only in the Massacre as an asterisk. And I guess I must have the world's worst poker face which is surprising because I'm a pretty fair cards player, but my poker face failed me on that one, and you did read my expression correctly, and it is The Massacre, and you got it in nine. That is a very good performance. Well, listen,
0: uh, Jason, you got to understand, I look at people's faces for a living on a screen, for the most part, as a director of television, so...
1: <laughs> I am not nearly as emotive as Stone Cold Steve Austin no,
0: but I I, I, I I understand facial expressions very well and I listened uh, to people's voices and I understand uh, pauses in their voices as well and that kind of gave it away. Well,
1: as well. Next time I may have to do our episode wearing a mask and throwing my voice through a voice changer. <laughs> Give it a try. We'll see what happens. All right, David, you've been a terrific guest. We're going to have you back in a few short weeks to discuss Ian and Marta. We will not be discussing Dick's uh, we're not discussing the slender dicks or the uh, <laughs> larger dicks of uh, the Auton invasion. Yeah, uh, I apologize to my audience for those sophomoric jokes, but uh, David brings out the best in me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we all appreciate the girth of uh, his books or, or lack thereof. I don't know. Uh,
1: we have a much longer, denser atmosphere, atmospheric book next time, so get to reading. We will be picking a recording date real soon now.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, just a, a, a little uh, just a little tidbit, man. I, the next story I picked for the pretty much the opposite reason why I picked this story.
1: Interesting. You have left us on a cliffhanger, and we will resolve that cliffhanger in three weeks' time. David, have a great night. Thanks, man. Doctor Who and the Image of the Fendal written by Terence Dix, televised as Image of the Fendal, teleplayed by Chris Boucher, televised in October and November 1977, published in July 1979. The Fendal is death, said the Doctor. How do you kill death itself? The ultra-modern technology of the time scanner combines with the ancient evil of Fetchwood and brings to life a terror that has lain hidden for 12 million years. The Doctor and Leela fight, to destroy the Fendal, a recreated menace that threatens to devour all life in the galaxy. And there you have it. That may be to date the shortest Target Book back cover blurb of all time. I guess even the editor couldn't make much sense of this story. You can usually tell when Terrence Dicks loves adapting a Doctor Who story that he did not write the teleplay for. He'll go all out on building up the story often with prologues or epilogues, Pyramids of Mars, The Horns of Nymon, or lush prose passages and elevating the dialogue, Talons of Wang Chiang. With Image of the Fendal, however, you can imagine that Terence didn't have much use for its disjointed exposition-light script. His work is only 103 pages long. Chapter 1 is made of brief bursts of scenes, taken from the camera script, with no connective tissue added to help explain why any of this is happening. Except, of course, for the quote from Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which Dave and I talked about earlier in the hour. Chapter 2 adds the important detail that Stahl, one of the Fetch Priory scientists, is a student of the occult, and tells us why the house dog is named Leaky. But otherwise, I think Terence might have been just as bewildered by the TV story as I was. Now, a lot of this is down to the TV story, not Terence. As Barsky and I discussed, I find Fendal frustrating. I want to love it. I've watched it several times and given it innumerable second chances to find out what I'm missing. And I'm convinced that had there been page count enough in time, the right novelization could get me to love this story unreservedly. The backstory and image of the Fendal is crying out for a sprawling 400-page novel. Check this. Dr. Fendelman, is an electronics wizard, influential at designing missile guidance systems, which makes him one of the richest men in Europe. But, while designing weapons, he discovers something else, some hitherto unknown principle. As a result, he's able to build a time scanner, a tremendously sophisticated device that enables him to actually look back in time and watch the past. Now, in Doctor Who continuity terms, he could well have been using technology provided by Professor Whittaker and or funded by Count Scarleone, but this TV story is continuity-free. In operating his time scanner, Fendelman comes to learn that life on Earth did not originate on Earth, and that man's earliest ancestor actually arrived from the stars 12 million years ago. As a result, Fendelman recruits a crack team, Colby, a passionate paleontologist, Theo Ransom, a lab technician, who's better at potassium argon-dating old objects than anyone.
0: Are you questioning my technical competence?
1: Of course not. The volcanic sediment is 12 million years old. I accept without reservation the results of your excellent potassium argon tests. Thank
2: you.
1: And Max Stahl, who, well, we never quite learn what's his skill set. Stahl is also secretly an occultist, and the time scanner operates out of a house. one of those old British villages where witchcraft and the old religion are still very much in vogue. Stahl comes to believe that when Colby digs up that 12 million year old skull, it will represent not just a human ancestor, but one of the old gods. And he quickly mobilizes the village coven to summon up that skull's latent power. Meanwhile, Thea, by unfortunate accident of being alone in the room with the skull when the time scanner operates, gets possessed by that skull's psychic powers, for when you x-ray the skull, you can see that the bone pattern in the crown forms the perfect pentagram, a powerful occult symbol. That is a lush, dense backstory. Unfortunately, almost none of it is revealed outright. You just have to guess at it from various hints drop down. The TV characters remain one-dimensional, and especially in Thea's case frustratingly out of focus. The Doctor gives several explanations in Part 4 as to what the plot could mean, before giving up, and saying that it could all just be a coincidence. The TV script is made up of dozens of short scenes that often end in mid-conversation, leading you to wonder what else the characters are saying after the camera pulls away. Fendelman and Stahl are enigmas, and we never learn why the skull seizes on Thea rather than someone else. Stahl and Fendelman should be interesting characters. Both are wasted here good actors whose best work was done in other Who episodes, most notably Dennis Lill in 1984's The Awakening. Just as Fendelman is about to reveal, quote, the true genesis of Homo sapiens, end quote, in part three, Stahl interrupts him at gunpoint. And we never even see that true genesis. The script builds, and builds, and builds, and then ignores. Plus, the bit of nonsense about the time scanner blowing up the Earth, the whole Earth, after 100 hours of operation, augurs a nice scene transition, where we see the machine's been in use for 99 hours already. But that ends up being an unnecessary beat of jeopardy, as the Fendal's planning on destroying the world anyway. Instead of following through on its hard sci-fi premise, the Time Scanner, image of the Fendal as seen on TV is a random assemblage of disturbing images, without much regard for plot logic. The Doctor knows of the Fendal through Gallifrey mythology, So when he sees Thea's unconscious body randomly glowing, with two Fendal shadows slavering over it, he instantly grasps the whole plot, but doesn't tell us till much later. Stahl's motives are left murky, as are Fendalman's. Ted Moss's character completely changes in between parts 1 and 2. The random cliffhanger of him firing at Leela, an image with no substance, as is director George Spenton Foster's delight in mixing shots of the Fendal skull on Thea's face. This is a ghost story that's heavy on spooky imagery. And don't get me wrong, it's effective imagery. It's scary imagery. It's light, though, on connective tissue. Weird things happen. And we just have to accept them. Now, some of this brevity, at least in the book, may have been down to time. Terence wrote five novelizations in 1979, including Fendal, and some of these are among his shortest works. Destiny of the Daleks... And then, of course, the last two weeks we've been discussing The Invisible Enemy and The Robots of Death. There was a lot jockeying for attention on his plate. He could have easily added an extra ten pages of exposition. Imagine backstory, kind of like I did earlier. Anything to pad out the story's thin narrative. But he didn't. There is one wicked thought narrated from Fendelman's POV that I do like. Quote, Fendelman sat staring into space for a moment. He was breaking the law, but that didn't matter. He was rich enough to get away with it. The work was too important to be endangered. Even the sacrifice of an innocent life was not too high a price. Satisfied he had come to the right decision, Fendelman returned to work. Funny that I'm writing and recording this just a day after Elon Musk finalized his buyout of Twitter, and the first thing that happened was the reinstatement of Kanye West's account. Now, the irony behind Fendelman's thought process, of course is that Fendelman himself is later sacrificed by Stahl during the ritual meant to summon up the Fendal late in Part 3 and turn Stahl into a god. Spoiler alert, Stahl doesn't turn into a god. Page 42 contains possibly the worst line Terence ever wrote. Mitchell screamed and died. Now, I mentioned that line to Barsky earlier, and I certainly hold to that belief. Can't blame Terence, though. The script wouldn't have given him much of a way to explain why or how Mitchell died now, does it? Terence adds no explanatory text at all to Thea's confession at the end of Chapter 5 that she's responsible for all the deaths, since the script never quite makes clear for us why the Fendal chose Thea or how aware she is of what's going on. Better is the doctor's observation on page 45 that getting locked up, as he is on that page, is the, quote, inevitable first step. Whenever he appears anywhere... That seems to be Terrence in 1979 basically begging for Russell T. Davies to invent the psychic paper, which eventually puts an end to all that lockup business in the 2005 series, and which Terrence himself later retconned into a second Doctor, past Doctor Adventure, I think a world game, which would have come out in 2005 after the new series dropped. Terrence does comment on the incongruity of the story's purported big revelations about the origin of mankind. Quote, the old-fashioned stone-flagged kitchen seemed a strange setting for a discussion of the origins of man. And he has fun with Leela, who's proud of herself for knocking out rather than killing a security guard. She was really getting quite civilized, Terrence has her think. Even in the middle of a weak story, or weaker, relatively, you can find something enjoyable to take out of any Terrence novelization. For the most part, though, Terrence merely describes the action in ways that translate what the script says, but without making larger sense. Like Thea's transformation in Chapter 10. Quote, Thea Ransom was no longer a human being, but a high priestess of the Fendaline. Soon, she would be the Fendal itself. That's it. That's the only explanation. There's really only one place in the text where Terence tries to make sense of everything. And that's in Chapter 7, when explaining why Stahl turns evil over a full page of text, and none of it based on spoken lines of dialogue on TV. It's probably the best passage in the book, and here are the first and last paragraphs of that, bottom of page 64. Stahl was a man with a single obsession, power. The only child of a distinguished Austrian scientist, he had been brought up by his scientist father. His mother had died when he was born. There was little love between father and son. Stahl grew up lonely and aloof. Unable to feel part of the rest of humanity. And this takes up the rest of the page. We'll jump down to the bottom of page 65, top of page 66. Quote Soon after he had begun work on the skull with Fendelman, Stahl had worked out a weird religion of his own. It involved the skull, the time scanner, the psychic energy generated by the coven, and the Ransom. The part four material takes up 24 pages, or a little less than a quarter of the text. Part 4 is where we get most of our explanations and action sequences on TV. So the material on the printed page comes across a little rushed and cursory. Terence, as he likes to do, uses the words weird and strange to cover for improbable events that happen on TV, though not as infamously as he later used them in The Eight Doctors in 1997. There is an explanation, though, on pages 95 and 96 as to why the Fendal Corps or the High Priestess, as she's called in the book, needs twelve Fendaline. It's so they can merge with her and form the Fendal itself. I don't believe that was ever made clear on TV. Now, the Doctor on TV gave an explanation about having shot one of the Fendaline and Stahl another, i.e. Stahl himself, but the book extends that brief explanation a sentence or two further. I almost grasp it.
0: What is it? Have you hurt yourself?
1: I've got it. It is available in the Priory. The skulls absorbing the energy released on the scanner beam damages the time fissure. Why didn't I think of that before? And you can't think of everything. I can't? No. No. Well, I should have thought it. I was frightened in childhood by a mythological horror. Too frightened to think clearly. is over prepare yourselves
2: don't do it style oh, shut up
1: you fool let him electrocute himself he will kill us all listen to me all of you he is a madman
0: Now before he plunges everything into chaos and death! I'll plunge you into chaos and death if you don't shut up. You
1: don't understand. I see now what will happen. Max, listen. The doctor asked if my name was real. Vendelman, Man of the Fendal.
0: But don't you see? Only for this have the generations of my fathers lived. I have been used. You are being used! Mankind has been used!
1: And that clip, from late in Part 3, is a really good example of why I find this story frustrating. The acting is good, well, apart from Dennis Lill's over-the-top accent, which he did not have in The Awakening years later. The scenery is good, the direction is good, Tom Baker is unusually subdued, And bearing in mind this episode falls in between The Invisible Enemy and then, a few weeks later, Underworld, which are not the most credible-looking bits of Season 15. It's just that, even after watching it over and over again, the story itself is still a little opaque and, if you will, timey-wimey for me. And I wish it was a little more clear-cut and spelled out. The book wraps up with lightning speed on page 109. And since the book starts on page 7, that leaves just 103 pages of text. As Terence concludes the book with the sentence, The TARDIS sped on its way to new adventures. One can almost imagine that Terence himself was glad to be speeding along to new adventures, non fendal adventures himself. His next book didn't come out for another four full months later. Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks, November 1979, which is a couple of weeks away for us one of the longest gaps in Terence's writing schedule for a good half-decade, and fortunately for us, he'll enjoy the next story, and more importantly, understand the next story, quite a bit more than this one. Next time, on Doctor Who Literature, as we wait through four months of 1979 for Terence's next book, you and I will travel two months ahead to September 1979. It's Malcolm Hulk's first novelization in three years, and sadly his last as the author had died two months previously, a mere 54 years old. It's the longest TV serial adapted for the target range so far, a stunningly long 10-episode classic, Then the novelization, which runs just 11 chapters and 137 pages of text, is often criticized for being too short or for cutting out too much of the TV scripts. I couldn't agree less. Join me and one of my more prolific returning guests, as we jump into our stolen time machines, cross multiple time zones, and say to each other several times, No! What a stupid fool you are! Next week, Doctor Who and the War Games. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, David Barsky, this podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Dr. Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. I have just wrapped up the hashtag Dr. Who Pilgrimage. That's Dr. Who Pilgrimage. And I will be starting TZ Pilgrimage or Twilight Zone Pilgrimage. That'll be hashtag TZPilgrimage, hopefully within a couple of days after this episode drops. You can also contact me on email at Literature, that's drwholiterature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
0: Doctor Who Podcast Network.